Hey, look at you. Florist by day, student by night, student by day, nurse by night. Since 1998, Penn State World Campus has led the charge in online education, offering access to more than 175 in-demand programs taught by our expert faculty. We offer flexible schedules, scholarships, and tuition plans to help you reach your educational goals online. Penn State World Campus delivers on your time. Click the ad or visit worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. That's worldcampus.psu.edu to learn more. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. I'm Kevin Flynn with Rebecca Lavoy and Paul Bay, and these are their stories. You think you know who did it, but you don't know who did it. Law and order, law and order, law and order. It's no ordinary police procedure, baby. It's the FNOG of police procedures, baby. Law and order, law and order, law and order, law and order. These are their stories, these are their stories. Welcome to These Are Their Stories, the podcast about Network TV's most enduring crime franchise and the real-life cases that inspired their shows. I'm Kevin Flynn. Each podcast will break down an episode from either Criminal Intent, SVU, or Original Recipe. Today we're looking at Criminal Intent Season 8, Episode 9, Family Values. Joining me to do just that is the producer of Crime Writers On, my wife, Rebecca Lavoie. Hello, Rebecca. That's producer and host, Kevin. Well, Rebecca, if you say so, I will let it slide. (laughs) And rounding out the panel is our special guest, author, comedian, and producer of the Tannis and Black Tapes podcast. It's Paul Bay. Hello, Paul. How's it going, guys? Hey, are you still a high school teacher? No, I quit a year ago. Good call. Yeah, great call. (laughs) You have a book called You Suck, Sir, Mm -hmm. which sounds like the meanest, politest thing any Canadian teenager's ever said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a co- the collection of uh, conversations I've had with my students, but but annotated because I can't have the full conversations. <laughs> well, you, so for some legal reason, or yeah, well, but various reasons. It just it just loses its place. Like when you talk to a real teenager in real time, there's a lot of tangents involved to get to get to the punchline. So I cut I cut the fat out, <laughs> like any good writer should. Yeah. So at, at what point did? Your education career and your stand-up comedy and show business career collide. The education came first, but I should tell you, because it connects to sort of the black tapes in a way, uh, before that I was a youth pastor for mm-hmm. this church in Vancouver. And then what? I left, yeah, I was, I was a deeply religious person, which sort of drew, drew me to the, the stuff in the black tapes. Like the, that's what, Terry's got his reasons for being attracted to that stuff. There's reasons I'm attracted to that stuff. And we both, all of our interests sort of collided in that show. But I was a youth pastor for a while. Wait, wait. And by the <laughs> religious stuff, you mean like the creepy devil stuff that's in the Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, 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 I used to believe. I, I, like I, right now I'm at the point where I, I'm an agnostic. Well, maybe, maybe leaning towards atheist regarding all that stuff. I used to accept that whole hog. I used to be a, a super evangelical Christian. I used to go to Urbana for the mission conferences down in Illinois in Champaign. Like I did mm-hmm. the whole thing. <laughs> well, it seems like we might have picked somebody who's like just perfect for this particular episode. <laughs> well, that, I was going to ask you if you knew that because I was when I started watching this episode, I, I was like, did, "Did you guys know this? Like, did you read in You Suck, Sir, about this about my religious background? Because it's it's right there. Like, I I was able to name the book as soon as that character, the father, started reciting it in his car. I was like, I know I know where that's from. I don't even have to oh look it up. Oh my god, Kevin, it's like. Imagine if Paul was still religious and we did this episode. How horrible that would be. <laughs> be so mad at us. You mentioned some of the characters from The Black Tapes, which is your one of your breakout podcast. 
Tell us uh, what that pitch meeting was like when you got together with your friends and said, this is what the story is. Well, it was just, it was just Terry and me. Uh, we, we were, we were uh, uh, he came to visit me one day. Um, I had some time off. I injured my back. And he came over to visit, and we, we wanted to do something together. We wanted to do a podcast. And we knew about Alex Reagan. We knew about Dr. Strand's Institute. That's all we knew. And we said, well, let's, let's just search that further to see if there's a story there. And uh, yeah, ended up with a story. So it was just really just Terry and me throwing it back and forth and then digging deeper. So do you know what the hell is going on in Tannis? No, I'm, I'm just like everyone else. I'm like, I can't <laughs> wait. And I don't like asking Terry because, you know, he, he mixes those episodes before they come out, well before. And I can tell sometimes he wants to tell me because I'm asking questions. But I, at the sa- I've asked the questions, but at the same time, I don't want to find out. I want to find out like everyone else. Now, I really like the fact that I can go to the North Pole and talk to Santa. When you're talking about Nick, yeah. the producer, yeah. um, are we sort of like... Not trying to break the fourth wall here. Fourth wall? I don't know what you're talking about, Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hold, hold on. That's funny. I just got a text from Nick right now, just as you said that. I'll text him later oh after this. What a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. Let me just text him back. He had a private joke. L-O-L. Send. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> now, you live in Vancouver. Yes. Which is sort of, I think for actors, is like Canadian New York. You just must have a ton of friends who you can pluck from for dramatic roles on these podcasts yeah if we ever do a fictional one we'll definitely use our friends <laughs> that's good <laughs> now, you've become sort of like the dick wolf of podcasting <laughs> here so is there a cue oh, so, to take wait wait wait, wait. hold on wait. a second think of the context in my head because the only law and order series i've ever seen is the is the original one and then mm-hmm. you guys asked me to watch criminal intent so you basically right. told me by saying i'm the dick wolf that one day my output's gonna really suck <laughs> <No>. <laughs> this was not i know that you didn't love this episode of criminal intent i wouldn't say it's typical of criminal intent well yeah as a canadian the reason we decided to pick a criminal intent episode for you is because you did tell us that you were just familiar with the original recipe yeah and so we wanted to get your take on one of the other franchises but Dick Wolf, I think is I think it's an app comparison because you've taken a good podcast and been able to spin off, you know, a related podcast. What's the secret as as far as replanting a cutting from one tree and planting it in another? You gotta love getting in the soil and, and getting getting dirty with like you just have to love the story. You just have to love what you're planting and you have to love watching it grow. That's that's all it is. Terry and I don't do a story unless we're both super excited about it. We have these, uh, what, we, what we call our personal, our high five moments. Uh, my girlfriend hates it because she'll hear us downstairs talking about a story we want to do. And then both of us start you know, screaming and yelling and she hears our hands high fiving. We know now that's, that's our story. <laughs> <laughs> so at the same time you were a teacher, you were doing stand-up comedy. Was there ever any problems with your material and you know, maybe somebody saying that isn't something a teacher should be talking about? No, the, you know, the, the strange thing was, like I've had teacher union leaders and stuff come out to my show, and so, but they loved it. Um, it's sort of like the, in my comedy early on, it showed like the backroom, staff room version of my profession. But the only time anyone's walked out on my show, uh, and I was two years into doing comedy, and the organizer said, great show. I go, was there any complaints at all? Because I did a lot of anti-religious stuff in that set, because that happened to be the topic. And she goes, ah, one woman walked out in tears, and she claimed you were her pastor but i told her there's no way that's possible that you're a teacher <laughs> and i just started rubbing my forehead i'm like oh my god i remember running outside looking for her i couldn't find her i got a description and she's like it was this asian woman i'm like thanks a lot okay so i'll look for an asian woman in vancouver in tears so 10 years later i found out who it was through a sister 
And we were able to laugh about it because she had, she had come around. Um, maybe not. Finally. Yeah, finally. Finally she, she was light. able to laugh. Yeah, 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 yeah. I brought her to Jesus and I brought her away. Like that's that's what I, that's the thing I do. That's my shit. Mission accomplished. Yeah. <laughs> so of all of the Law & Order franchises, of which you apparently are only familiar with one, uh, which cops are your favorite detective team? Favorite Law & Order detective team. I like, I like Briscoe and Green. They were my favorite. And I like Green too. Yeah? Was that, <laughs> is that your favorite out of the original? Uh, of the original, I'm a Briscoe and Green fan. I also like the Blackish Years with Anthony Edwards. I'm not going to lie. Love those uh, later episodes of Law and Order. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I do love me some Jesse L. Martin. We can't have an episode go by without you saying that Jesse L. Martin is gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah, gorgeous. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm just going to check that off. All right. <laughs> what is the other thing I must do? Oh, yes. I have to ask you, Paul, who is your favorite prosecutorial team? Favorite Law and Order District Attorney Prosecutorial Team. Oh, this one. Well, uh, easily, um, oh, what's his name? The the the, the one on. Uh, why can't I remember his name now? Gray haired guy. The. He, We're not going to help you. We're not going to save you. Oh, what's his name? He's the father on the new Netflix Jane Fonda <laughs> series, <laughs> where he plays her gay father. Oh, mm-hmm. uh, gee, okay, it, it's oh man, um, mm-hmm. prosecutor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you yeah. talking about Jack McCoy? Yes, McCoy. That's it. Played, Thank you so played much. Played by Sam Waterston. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Sam Waterston and um, why do I have to do it through football players? Jason Seahorn's wife. Angie oh, Harmon. Angie That's Harmon. Angie, Angie, Angie Harmon, yeah. yeah. I, loved the, I loved her voice. I, I could just bathe in that voice. What a voice. She was like her and... And McCoy, just the, the balance of that those voices. Carmichael and McCoy. Yeah. There's a good pick. Yeah, she's great. I got to say, though, a little bit sexist to identify her by who her husband is. Just going to say. Yeah, well, that's how people refer to me, by who my <laughs> wife is. <laughs> now, let's look at the first half of this episode, Family Values. Because of production rescheduling, this season eight episode is either listed as episode number eight or number nine that season. We open with Paul DeVildis, a God-fearing man who leaves his daughter's school play early to bludgeon his sister-in-law and brother-in-law with a hammer. So cheerful. But really, who among us has not wanted to kill someone after sitting through a teenage production of Cyrano de Bergerac? (laughs) Gorn and Eames suspect something is off because the killer drank coffee with the woman and left behind the man's stack of cash. Two selective blows, enough to kill, but not more. It lacks disorganization of someone out of control. I think he was in total control. I think he knew this place, he planned this, and he showed up with a small, heavy weapon. Yeah, from the injuries, my guess would be a hammer. The detectives learned the victims were having money problems, and DeVildis was trying to help them save their house, even though he's lost his job at the bank. When DeVildis learns the next school play will be by that heathen Tennessee Williams, he strikes the drama teacher with the hammer which is still not as bad as what the sophomore class drama critic did to her in the St. Agnes Bugle. <laughs> Gorn suspects the connection between the two crimes is the play, which brings him back to DeVildis. At the same time, DeVildis is delivering a prayer at his in-law's funeral. We see a small cardboard box, which definitely does not contain a pipe bomb, <laughs> to be delivered to his former boss at the bank. So as far as criminal intent episodes go, this one is really dark. It's super dark. It opens up with a guy bludgeoning someone to death with a hammer. Like, it is a very, very Dexter cold open of Law & Order. You know, we're used to seeing on Criminal Intent the perp doing the crime. 
we're definitely not used to seeing a guy wearing, you know, blue surgical gloves, calmly drinking coffee before viciously. No, those weren't blue surgical gloves. Those were yellow Playtex dishwashing gloves. Oh, sorry. We're definitely not used to seeing a guy wearing yellow Playtex dishwashing <laughs> gloves. Excuse me, stickler detail. Uh, but it was it very much reminded me of like an opening of Dexter, not so much an opening of Criminal Intent, but, you know, a lot cheesier. Paul, we're going to establish this right off. We said that you are a criminal intent virgin. Yes. What did you think of this episode? I got excited when I saw the dude from Stranger Things, the cop. Uh -huh. the, uh, officer uh, Hopper. Like, I'm character names, but I don't know the actor. Uh, but the, the Officer Hopper, I saw him and I'm like, oh, hey, I get to see an early thing of him from Stranger <laughs> Things. Like, now, guys, I love that show. Now I'm watching this, but they should have just called this episode Stranger Things because it was really screwed up. Like, this. You have this guy. Like, it started right away when I thought, well, why is he walking out of this adult community theater? Because there's no way that's a high school. Being a high school teacher, there's no way those guys are high school kids on, on stage. <laughs> unless it's like, unless it's like they've all, it's special school for everyone who's failed five times. Because they're all like, <laughs> the youngest actors are 23. And I'm like, I'm like, give me a break. And so, yeah, right off, it, it just lost me right away. Like, it was very, just a very odd thing to see. I went from, like, this will be exciting to this is really strange. And then all of a sudden with that scene where he kills that guy and that dead woman's there, but he kills him with a hammer to the head. I just thought, well, did you guys make me watch this as a prank? Because I thought- <laughs> <laughs> We were punking you. Yeah, yeah, I make I a prediction that our Criminal Intent fans are not gonna be happy with this episode either. <laughs> <laughs> but let's push along because I actually think there are some, some fairly good points to this episode. What sets off this killing spree? Apparently it's the fleeting view of a teenage daughter's collarbone collarbone that was straight up cleavage yeah, yeah. guess yeah. what dad your daughter's got boobs <laughs> <laughs> and forget homicides after that school play shouldn't we have seen a rash of suicides <laughs> you know we know made me want to commit suicide this whole episode what the creepy children of the corn soundtrack like every single time you would see um you know creepy sheriff hopper about to do some crime in some situation you'd hear like the the kids like oh like the creepy oh, like right. choir yeah that was uh that was not good. They've mixed sort of the usual tonal, you know, thing that they they used to set the mood in, in with this this choir kind of music to not only to sort of give this the sense of dread, but sort of this, I think, for lack of a better term, religious sense of dread. It wasn't done well in this episode. Now, I'll tell you, as a loyal Tannis listener, and I'm not just saying this because Paul's in the line, it's going to sound like I'm being all kiss-assy, but um, the sound design on that podcast has sometimes given me actual chills when I'm listening to it. This did the opposite. It gave me douche chills when I was listening <laughs> to it. It made me miss the original because there's so much music layered into this episode. Like I was not allowed to feel what I wanted to feel throughout. The, like they, 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 they were telling Nauseous? me, yeah, they were telling me what I needed to feel. Like you need to feel like what you said in a field full of corn with kids staring at me with knives in their hands. Like it was a really strange experience watching this, thinking I was going to watch something in the franchise of Law and Order. Did I miss it? There's no law part of it, right? Like, there's no... There's no order in this episode. Yeah, there's, there's no order. It's, it's, it's all law. It's all law. Zero order in this particular one, for sure. So you want to know what makes Paul DeVillidis a great killer? He's able to bash the hell out of three people with a hammer and never get a drop of blood on that camel hair coat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and here's a pro tip. If you're going to go to the trouble of putting your messy murder weapon in a plastic bag, don't just throw it out in the dumpster behind the crime scene. <laughs> put a little extra effort into it. He put, he put so much effort into everything else. I mean, he, you know, made the coffee. 
at the crime scene. He um, went through the extra step of making the bomb himself to drop off at the bank. Well, you can't get those at Walmart. <laughs> well, I thought when he put the, when I saw him throw that uh, ball peen hammer away in the back garbage container in that plastic Ziploc bag, I thought that was his way of leading the cops towards him because nothing holds on to fingerprints better than a Ziploc bag. So, you know, he's, he's touching it with his hands. So I thought, oh, he's leaving breadcrumbs. He's but preserving th- the evidence for yeah. them. Why bother putting it in a bag <laughs> if you're just going to chuck Paul's it? right. I think he was preserving the evidence for them so that they would know who did it. I think he wanted them to know who did it. Well, they uh, certainly were able to track him down in record time. And instead of this going to the last 10 minutes, well, we don't know whether or not they're going to catch the killer they know sort of halfway through that this is their guy and it ends up becoming a chase. Yeah, and then the whole second half of the episode, it seems, is that interminable interrogation in the cabin. That's how they do all the filling of the second half because, you know, they do catch up with him so quickly. Well, one thing that I got to ask about this, the, 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 his partner, does she ever take the lead? Because she seems sort of there for like coloring or like she didn't seem to do anything. She is there to be the scully to his molder. She's sort of like the straight man. She didn't do a lot in this episode, but typically she's the one who sort of translates him to the rest of the world or sort of (laughs) pulls him back from the edge of insanity. She's kind of like the Dr. Watson to his Sherlock, because no doubt Gorn is, you know, a quirky character. He's he's written that way. So you can't have two quirky detectives. That would be too much. You certainly want sort of the opposite kind of personality for a character so that it remains grounded. So she's the doctor to his Nell. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. So we have a whole family of Hey, It's That Guys. Hey, it's that guy. (laughs) (laughs) So you mentioned before, can you name the actor who plays Paul DeVildis? No. I know know it's Sheriff Hopper. Right. Uh, His name's David Harbour. You saw her in Cyrano then? You asking me where I was the night that Joe and Millie were murdered? Dad. What, honey? It's okay. The cops got to check up on everybody. Isn't that true? He's great. I love that guy. I love that guy, too. Yeah, he's also had other roles like in uh, Black Mass. And, well, you know, his big breakout role, of course, is in Stranger Things. Yep. He does look an awful lot like Michael C. Hall, who played Dexter, by the way. They could be brothers. Yeah, he does, yeah. We have a Hey, It's That Girl. Hey, it's that girl. <laughs> do you know the wife? I know where I know her from, but where I don't do you know, know her, her name. From? I know her from The Americans. Right. Susan Meisner is the name of the actress, and she did play the neighbor on The Americans. Oh, you're right. I love that show. I was, I was trying to place her. Oh, that's good. She's awesome. What's funny is that both David Harbour and Susan Meisner were on the same episode of Special Victims Unit in season four. Hmm. And in that one, he played a serial pedophile. <laughs> I've seen that one. <laughs> He's being typecast. The thing that Sheriff Hopper could do in Stranger Things that Paul DeVildes could not is knock a guy out with one punch. <laughs> Throw a damn good punch. Throw a damn good punch. Boom, and they just go down. There's never a second punch with Sheriff Hopper. DeVildes no. can do it when he has a hammer in his hand, however. That's true. That's true. Hey, did anyone recognize the daughter? No. Paul? No? No, no. That's Britt Robertson. And she starred in the box office flop Tomorrowland with George Clooney. How would we know that? Nobody saw that movie. And Well, she also played Angie on CBS's Under the Dome. So she also was able to go on and salvage her career despite this being Paul's <laughs> least favorite episode of Criminal <laughs> Intent. Now, can we assume that next year's school musical will not be Book of Mormon? <laughs> You know, the whole thing about the play setting off his rage was really interesting to me. Then him then him going after the drama teacher to sort of like focus, you know, that it was her fault or something. But I thought the whole point of him killing everybody was they could all be together in heaven. 
So to me, it was sort of like he was also bringing the drama teacher along to heaven with him. I didn't really understand why he had to go after her. Yeah, that was a little confusing. It didn't, it didn't fit any theological paradigm that I'd learned. <laughs> Definitely not. Bal- the Balpine hammer was not in uh, James at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, in order to create tension in an open mystery, we have to think that the culprit might get away with it. So at this point, halfway through, do we have a sense that DeVildis is savvy enough that he can get away with these crimes? I don't think he thinks he's going to get away with it. I think he thinks he's going to be dead, right? I mean, he is smart. But that is his plan. That is ultimately his plan, is to bring everybody to heaven. Yes. So that's so. is he smart enough to do that? He wasn't even smart enough to survive the subprime lending crisis. <laughs> yeah. Paul, what do you think about this character? Right, you, you have done... Some fiction. We're not just going to talk about your podcasting journalism episodes <laughs> of black tapes and whatnot. But when you're designing characters, right, you, you want to be able to think at least that the bad guy is going to get away. Otherwise, there's no point in watching the chase, right? Yeah, especially when you have someone like this, like the audience is watching saying, well, there's no way this guy's getting away with it. But we're also thinking many people are going to die on the way to getting this guy. Like he's probably going to die. Like I thought he, there's no way he's going to survive. Well, let's not spoil it for everybody. Well, I have to say, can we just talk for a second about, like, the super long close-up on the dog? <laughs> oh, you mean when she goes to walk Oh, God, the dog? I hated that. I did not like that. You knew, because this episode was, like, the whole thing was like this. When they do the super close pan in where they're, like, looking at the dog for no reason, it's like, remember this dog's face. <laughs> it's going to be important later. And, of course, I have a real problem uh, with any story in which any harm comes to a dog of any kind, even Cujo, who was rabid and wanted to kill you. I didn't think they should have killed that poor dog. So killing the whole family was just sort of meh. But the dog that was, was law a, and order. Was... But the dog, unacceptable. Yeah, because not all dogs go to heaven. Like, he knows that. Not all of them, <laughs> right? Like, if he's, like, licking his balls every day when they're not looking, saying, oh, I'm off. I got the house to myself, and lick, lick, lick. Like, he's not, there's a, there's a doggy hell for, like, for sinners like that. <laughs> now, if a guy you fired shows up at work with a box for the company president, <laughs> I don't care how many brownie points you want to score. Paul, would you actually bring it to him? The guy had never heard of poison. Like, that was a much easier way to go. Like, just I'm going to send you some donuts <laughs> and coffee on me, and let's call it even. Like, not a box. I ha- and that thing's heavy. Like, what was it? He's carrying it around. The actor was carrying it around like it was a really light thing. But it's really yeah. heavy for the size of that box. He should have thought, wow, this feels like a bunch of ball bearings in a lead It's also pipe. a round pipe. It should be rolling around <laughs> inside the box. This weight shifting. What is this? There was some suspension of disbelief there. I do believe they were supposed to feel, what, guilty that... Paul had been fired or something. He was the scapegoat for the entire subprime mortgage problem. Well, they felt bad. He was having a really rough week. I just think they felt bad because he had to drive an Ultima. (laughs) (laughs) I I love the part about the subprime because when that hit, I thought, okay, the writers had this morality play in mind. Like, let's do a lesson on the evils of the subprime thing. And then another writer in the room said, hey, you guys ever read Revelations? And then another guy, another guy said, hey, you guys have any teenage daughters? Because my girl's boobs are huge. And then, and then that became a script. Yeah. Uh, unlike episodes in the law, regular Law and Order franchise or even other episodes of Criminal Intent, there were no red herrings here. Like I kind of thought the subprime lending thing was going to be like a new turn. It was going to take a turn. But there were uh, all the things that I thought were going to be the things that were going to be turns in the episode. 
ended up being nothing. They it, just ended up being like interstitial dialogue points. It really was a very linear plot in comparison to other episodes of, of any Law and Order, right, where you, you have a red herring and you go here or there's some other character that comes in. We basically just go straight down the line to see with what Paul DeVillidis is doing and to kind of track the different things that he's doing to get his plan done. Yeah, we watched an episode of Law and Order the other night that I think the first 40 minutes were spent doing stuff that had nothing to do with what happened. <laughs> and this was the opposite of that. I had a sense that what they're trying to say is that, you know, the what happened to Paul during the because of the subprime crisis, that made him snap. And his already latent or maybe overt religious tendencies took over and, and made him nuts. But I didn't I didn't get that sense. Though. I, I had the sense that he was religiously nuts even before that time, because his daughter seemed resigned to the fact like, oh, yeah, dad doesn't like this kind of stuff. He doesn't like gay people. Like, this is something she grew up with. So I felt Yeah, like and they've been hiding it from him. Yeah, and I, I, I feel like... That, that, by the way, did you guys notice that, that, that the headmaster, the woman, she goes, we're a very conservative Christian school. And this is, she said that just before them mounting Tennessee Williams. I thought that was, <laughs> thought that was really odd. That, that, that was a little bit odd. That took me right out of that thing, because, you know... Yeah, I guess Andrew Lloyd Webber was just too edgy. <laughs> when you support us at Patreon at just $5, you will get exclusive content like the Toby Ball's Deep Dive Book Club, Laura's Rage Walk, the Crime Writers on After Show, and Married with Podcast with Rebecca and me. Start getting your exclusive perks for just $5. Join our own elite squad at patreon.com slash partners in crime media. That's patreon.com slash partners in crime media. Now let's look at the second half of this episode. After the bomb makes spare change out of the bank president, uh, they're now pretty much almost all the way sure it's Paul DeVildis that they should be talking to. <laughs> and when the SWAT team raids the DeVildis' house, they enter to hear creepy religious music playing. And if there's one person who knows the dangers of creepy religious music, it's Paul Bay. <laughs> <laughs> the dog and the wife have been shot, but daughter Kathy is not to be found. So he's killing to send them to heaven. A woman who saw the news coverage claims the missing daughter spent last night at her house for a sleepover. So she's alive. Her father picked her up this morning at 7. Maybe she's not part of his plan. No, I think she is part of the plan. I think that he wants to spend some special moments with her. That's ruined once Kathy overhears on the radio about how Dad just shot Mom. DeVildis is captured by the FBI trying to visit Grandma at the nursing home, but Gorin and Eames want to know what he's done with Kathy. They find markings at the family cabin left by Kathy indicating that she's been taken to a cemetery, but there are hundreds of them in the area and she'll die of exposure before morning. Gorin tells DeVildis that he's been tricked by the devil and convinces him to serve God by revealing the hiding place. Kathy is found alive at a graveyard where her forefathers are buried. Now, first off, does anyone think you can actually detonate a black powder pipe bomb by lifting the top off of a cardboard box? No. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> that was a pretty gruesome uh, bomb scene. Yeah. All the deaths in the show were gruesome. And we saw the dog, the poor dog was, you know, uh, was the dog's head cut off? It looked like it was a lot of blood. It was, but I also noticed sort of this plastic hand that was just sort That's of right. just left. That's right. Across the room. It was I, like they borrowed some props from Saving Private Ryan and just scattered them about <laughs> in that bank. So when he shot his wife, did he have a silencer? Like, 
It didn't do anything to his daughter. Like, his daughter never heard it at night. She wasn't there. She was at a sleepover. Oh, okay. I assumed he went to go pick her up from the sleepover and was like, hey, let's go to the creepiest daddy-daughter dance ever, honey, which then it proceeded to be. That whole scene in the car was so weird. So it's just you and me. Sound boring. safe with you and the scenes every, all the scenes of the two of them together of her sort of cloyingly calling him daddy and him staring at her lecherously super creepy yeah i assumed he went to pick her up at the sleepover after doing the killings at home and why by the way did he leave the boombox in the counter with the music playing who was that for well i think it's all part of the idea that he wants his family to go to heaven and that's the way in his mind he's going to accomplish it and so it's part of this religious ritualistic Killing, you know, he also took all of the bodies of the people that he loved and very lovingly arranged them or covered them or tucked them into bed, which, you know, sort of if you're going to talk to a real FBI profiler, that's the way that someone who really sort of loves the person that they've killed, it's it's a way that they may act. Paul, I have a question for you since he used to be a minister. Mm-hmm. Does burning a Yankee candle and leaving a boombox out on the counter guarantee your entrance into heaven? Yeah, as long as you don't, like... Do things like use a hammer to kill somebody, (laughs) right? Or shoot your wife in the head. You know, simple things like that. Or like cut your dog up. You know, simple moral things. As long as you do that, that only helps. Too bad that's not written down somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) It's almost it was was almost a surprise to him when D'Onofrio's character tells him, you know, thou shalt not kill. It's almost like reminded him, oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't believe you. Now, I would say that after a very fast-paced first half, things really slow down when he goes out of town and goes on the run. Yeah, the whole thing slowed down, trying to get her to help him start the truck. That whole sort of very, like, lugubrious scene where they go to the nursing home and pick him up. And there actually is, by the way, some really clever camera work in that scene where you see (laughs) an image in the... And I know it's a little bit cheesy because the whole show is cheesy. But in other shows, if you'd seen that same camera work, you would have been like, oh, that was really cool. How you see, you know, Sheriff Hopper's reflection in the mirror. I like the cinematography. I thought it was pretty good. I kind of did, too. The music really distracted me from it. I I like the way the show is shot. It's shot very differently than the other Law & Order shows. And it, it does... It's designed to make D'Onofrio look like he's on the prowl all the time, and I like that. Paul, are we supposed to read that there may be something else going on with Dad when it comes for his love with his daughter? That that part just, it, it just creeped me out. Like, the first scene creeped me out when he's staring at her cross right above her cleavage and the, the way his physical discomfort in the seats, and he had to leave. And then when the religious thing kicked in, I thought, okay, well, obviously, I read into that. But that's how good that actor is. He, he delivered that right at the beginning. That Sheriff Hopper guy, you're not supposed to, I don't think you're supposed to read that because that's some screwed up religiosity. There's no way to justify that. And I think that's why he was melting down in D'Onofrio's presence when he's confronted him on that. Kathy's sweetness. And a glow in her eyes. Soft, young flesh. That warmth that you feel when you hold her tight. You know, the voice that speaks those words, is that the same voice that told you to spare her life? 
I want to hear this. You know in your heart that that's not God's voice. That's the trickster, the tempter. Yeah, D'Onofrio called him out on yeah. basically like having lustful feelings for his daughter, right? Yeah. And that's why it's good that he kept his hands together so he can't cover his ears and go like, nah, 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 nah. Like, don't <laughs> talk to him on that because there's an easy fix for that. Just don't listen. But no, he had to listen because D'Onofrio already thought of that. Well, everything seemed to be like sort of chugging along. And then we get to this thing where instead of just keeping Kathy at the house that they have, he's got a stash or someplace. <laughs> and apparently she has all these drawings behind her back in the dirt. Uh, on the rock. On the rock. With her hands back here, she drew this in the dirt with her fingers. Looks like a, a box with a cross jutting out. What is it? You tell us. You're thinking the box is a coffin, cross means a cemetery. Well, he was getting ready to throw her in the truck. She rubbed this against this boulder here. Makes this mark. It's nothing we can read. She had to have a reason for doing it. I mean, was this maybe just one step too far that you need to do this? Yes, and here's why. The idea is he's going to take her to the cemetery so that, you know, it will be someplace different, right? Mm-hmm. Yet somehow she knew where he was going to take her. He has this whole like secret plan that he's going to kill them. So what we're to believe is that he tied her up next to the rock and she was like, hey, dad, where are you taking me? <laughs> now, unless this is like some like really one of those really bad James Bond movies or an episode of like Scooby Doo, there's no way that dad would have been like. I'm taking you to this particular ceremony in the woods. Like that whole thing was ridiculous. Plus that backwards drawing, a little bit too symmetrical. Or or dad knew it. So he did tell her only because he'd played Pictionary with her before. And, <laughs> and knew, well, she sucks. I love my daughter, but she really sucks at this stuff. There's no way she could draw a cross on top of a box behind no, her back. I think... When they looked at it, I think it said, oh, this must be like the share button on an iPhone. Yes. It did not look anything like a grave. It was like a box with a cross on it. It didn't even look like one of those like creepy symbols that always happens in the black tapes that sort of indicate some devil stuff going on. It was literally a box with a cross on it. It could have been anything. And they immediately divined from it that it was a cemetery. I don't know. I don't know about that. It was a little bit uh, of a stretch. Or that you're using the rock to like scratch out like this is a this is a rubbing of a gravestone. <laughs> that was a leap, right? <laughs> like, oh man, that 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 one. Okay, so you know, drawing that box cross behind her back with her hands tied. Okay, I'll give her that. But there's no way you could connect that rubbing on. She, like the girl, we're supposed to believe that girl thought, huh? I need to draw. A, I need to leave a hint for these cops that don't know me. They'll eventually <laughs> see this. I need to let them know. Okay, gr- cemetery. Okay, box cross. Obviously, duh. And now I need to specify which cemetery. Oh yeah. Headstone rubbings. And so she used a rock <laughs> and rubbed a rock the boulder with it. That's the weakest hint ever. After the cops go in the house and are immediately able to identify the super specific thing in a frame on the wall, they will immediately make the connection that when I rubbed this rock on this other rock, it meant I was in this specific place. I agree. It was absurd. But it got the job done. It did get the job done. But you know what? All I could think, they go find... Kathy, right? Mm-hmm. And they untie her, and it's supposed to be like good, I guess, that they find her. They untie her, but it's like, hey, good news, guess bad what, news. Kathy, 
Your my dad's going to prison. Your mom's dead. Your dog's dead. Your aunt and uncle are dead. Your favorite teacher's dead. Your grandma's still alive. <laughs> your grandma has dementia. That's right. So she's not going to remember you anyway. So bad news there too. But hey, we got two tickets to Annie, so you can watch it for Christmas. <laughs> it'll, it'll cheer you up. It's about an orphan. Ah, oh, never mind. <laughs> she will have the best college essay ever to get into Yale. <laughs> are you part of a minority group? Sort of. <laughs> Let's take a look at the real life story that inspired this episode. It's time for Rip from the Headlines. You think you know who did it. You think you know who did it. But you don't know who did it. You don't know who did it. Rip from the Headlines. This episode shares some plot points with the 1971 case of John List. The papers dubbed him the Bogeyman of Westfield, New Jersey. List was a church-going family man and bank vice president. When he lost his job, he kept the secret by leaving home, reading the paper, then returning for dinner. List feared financial ruin and worried his family was turning away from God. One day, List shot his wife and mother in the morning, then his two younger children after school. After making himself lunch, List went to his oldest son's soccer game, then killed him when they returned home. List left a note saying he murdered his family so they would go to heaven. He cancelled his mail and milk deliveries. He sent excuse notes to school. He cut his face out of all the family photos and left religious music playing on the radio. List did such a good job covering his tracks, the murders weren't discovered for a whole month. John List vanished. Eighteen years later, a neighbour spotted him on America's Most Wanted. He had been living a new life in Virginia. John List was given five life sentences and died in prison in 2008. So, guys, there are a lot of details here that are the same. And the big one, of course, is uh, I will kill you to send you to heaven. Holy crap. But the one that isn't in the Law & Order episode is I'm not going to kill myself, too. I'm going to run away and live like a new life without you. I bet he wasn't even religious in his new life. In his new life? (laughs) Well, he says that he asked for forgiveness a lot of times, but uh, he never uh, asked to turn himself in. Wow, I'm blown away. By the way, what do you say to your son after the soccer game before you kill him? <laughs> Don't worry about trying harder next time. Yeah, that was a weak pass. Right? We were playing a 3-4 defense, and do you know how to count? Bang. <laughs> like, like, well, like Parents get too involved these days in their kids' sports. That's all I'm saying. But don't worry about but it. But the yeah, boombox yeah. detail was real. Yeah, the religious music playing... But it was the 70s, so it probably wasn't a boombox. It was probably just like what, a record hi-fi or something. It was just kept playing over and over again. Was there a dog? And there was a religious station back then. Yeah. Yes, that's true. They just turned it to W... C-R-C-H? <laughs> yeah. W-W-J-D. You're listening to the fish. The Jesus fish. <laughs> he had one of those on his car. Yeah. <laughs> right, you said well the one thing that didn't happen was going on the run for eighteen years, which right. is which is pretty amazing that you could even in that day just sort of just drop off the face of the earth. God bless John Walsh and America's most wanted man. This is like all pre digital, of course. So like you could go on the run because you could basically just like dye your hair, live somewhere else, who's gonna know, right? Right. You, you know what's you know what's crazy that so those so that ripped from the head that that story, the true story is already crazy enough. So the writers were talking about that story, and they said, you know what would make it even creepier? If he lusted after his own daughter. 
<laughs> and then someone said, probably, well, why don't we save that for another episode? Because we do that too much. No, 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 no. Let's get it in this one right now. And so, like, they didn't need to go there with this one. Yeah, I mean, the motive was he was afraid they weren't going to get into heaven or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. In the real life, yeah. In the real life one. That's enough. Yeah. It, it, that also well, strikes me. That's enough of a motive. Plus, the whole banking thing, super interesting that he also lost his job and was pretending to still work. You know how you can tell this happened in the 70s instead of now? Because he could afford to not go to work for months and no one would know. <laughs> Nobody has that much savings stashed aside anymore. Well, you know, one of the, one of the real life details was his wife wife had uh, syphilis and from a first husband and was an alcoholic. And he said, because this is what he says years later that drove him to it, but he felt belittled. These are all things he lost the job. These are all things that are stressors that in real life are things that investigators look for saying this is these are the events that led to him snapping and killing. Sounds like he was a perpetual victim is what it sounds like to me. It sounds like he was one of those people who like, what did um, Elmore Leonard always say? Like when you run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole, you run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. Yeah. That's what this guy sounds like to me. So did anyone else get that the name DeVildis is spelled with a devil? No. Oh, that's like Louis Cipher from Angel Heart. <laughs> That's exactly. Good. That's really good. Louis <laughs> Cipher. Yeah, DeVildis, D-E-V-I-L-D-I-S. That almost sounds like the writers are just being, it sounds like they put in like a slug name. Like, this is Mr. Devil, and we'll give him a real name later. And then someone was just like, well, let's just add another syllable at the end of that. No, it's so, a real name. There are people out there named DeVildis. There are? There are. It sounds like a real name. They're going to be tweeting at us later. (laughs) I think they're going to be tweeting at us later because of what you said about why would you kill a kid after a soccer game. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's going to do it for us. We want to thank our guest, Paul Bay. Paul, where can our listeners follow you online? They could go to my Twitter handle, I guess. I guess I think I have all my information there, at Mr. Paul Bay. And uh, you can go to yousuckster.com. And, of course, uh, theblacktapespodcast.com. And that's Bay, B-A-E. Yes. And Rebecca Lavoie, how can our listeners follow you? They can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Reb Lavoie. And you can track me on Twitter at Kevin P. Flynn. You can also tweet to us at Law & Order Pod. Our newsreader was Cy Freighter. Our theme music was composed and performed by Uncanny Valleys. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review on iTunes. It helps others discover this program just like you did. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with U.S. Copyrights Act, fair use exemption for criticism and commentary. Special thanks to the elite squad of the Law & Order Wiki community for preserving the evidence. If you want to know what episodes we'll be talking about in our upcoming shows, go to lawandorderpodcast.com. We'll see you in two weeks. These Other Stories was recorded in Studio C and is a production of Partners in Crime Media. Partners in Crime Media. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application.